0: Lennon Lopate at Large. I'm Lennon Lopate. Marion Nessel has been teaching and writing about what we eat for nearly half a century. In her latest book, a memoir, she reflects on her career as a world-renowned food politics expert, public health advocate, and a founder of the field of food studies slow cooked and unexpected life in food politics is published by the university of california press and brings marion Nessel, the paulet goddard professor of nutrition and public health emerita at nyu to our show now welcome back
1: oh glad to be here
0: you begin your book by noting that you've been teaching and writing about the effects of of politics on what we eat for nearly half a century But you didn't publish your first book, Food Politics, until 2002, when you were 66 years old.
1: Yeah, I'm really old. What can Uh, I say?
0: Well, I wasn't saying that. I'm just saying that you waited a long time to write about something that you'd been thinking about for a long time. But you'd been writing articles, right?
1: Yeah, I was writing articles. I didn't quite get the whole idea about books because my training was in basic science and basic scientists don't value books. They value lab research and studies that are published in prestigious medical journals. And I didn't figure out for a long time that I could take the articles that I was writing and collect them together into a book. And that was the origin of food politics, um, where I just I thought, well, I'll just take these articles and put them together into a book without quite realizing what that was going to entail.
0: You suggest uh, in the introduction to this book that it's all been something of a surprise to you. How much of a change did publishing that first book make in your life?
1: It was a total career change I mean I had some goals For it and one of them One of them was a personal Goal which was to get better lecture Invitations and uh, boy Does that go under the heading of you have to Be careful what you ask for Uh, It was a total change I mean before that I I thought in writing that book that I was just stating the obvious, that I was describing what I was seeing, that anybody who was looking would see the same thing. But in fact, the idea that um, I had put together a book that documented uh, efforts by the food industry to sell products, no matter how healthy those products were or were not, was really shocking to people. People did not think of the food industry in the same way that they thought of other businesses like the cigarette industry or the alcohol industry for example I mean you think of food as being really benevolent it's something you eat these are products we love and I I think it just never occurred to people it certainly hadn't occurred to me until uh, you know I had some realization about it that food companies are businesses like any other and that their primary goal is to um, make profits not to make people healthy.
0: And we'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, But I I, want to get to the process. Uh, The subtitle of the book we're discussing today is An Unexpected Life in Food Politics. Uh, Unexpected? Uh, It's it's your 14th book, and it describes your rise from bench scientist to uh, the top of academia as you had to overcome the barriers and biases that— face women of your generation. Were women uh, really excluded from talking about these things, even though we are talking about food, which is often thought of as the province of women?
1: Well, I came of age at a time when options for women were extremely limited. And what I mean by that is that women were expected to get married and have children, which mm-hmm. I did, by the way, quite early. At, um,
0: at nineteen, you couldn't. I got
1: matter. married at nineteen, um, and I had children fairly early on. Um, But when I was in high school, for example, the ambitions that my friends had, uh, I had three friends who had as their life ambition to marry a professor, a doctor and a rabbi, respectively, and they did. Uh, I didn't even have those kinds of ambitions, but certainly women weren't expected to work and have careers, at least not in the socio-economic group that I was in. I mean, I came from a very poor family. I was the first person in my family to go to college. The expectations for me were extremely low. Uh, I was expected to be a secretary. If I was going to work at all, it was going to be in, to support my husband. Uh, the, uh, I mean, it's just hard to imagine what it was like in those days. And if you tried, I mean, there were women who... Uh, had careers and established careers. I just didn't know any of them. And certainly they came from socioeconomic groups that were much more advanced than mine. Um, I've met women since of my age who went to medical school or went to law school and but they came from academic or professional families and had a lot more money than my family did.
0: You were born into a working class Jewish family and you describe having a rather challenging childhood. Why did it involve crisscrossing the country?
1: Well, you know, my father couldn't hold a job, basically. Uh, He had authority problems. And um, I couldn't really get deal with a job that made him come to work every day from nine to five. I mean, that was really not something that he could tolerate, and so he changed jobs a lot. He had a brother. We lived in New York City, um, or in or out on Long Island, as the as he got jobs and had a little bit more money. We moved into Manhattan, um, although not into a, a very elegant neighborhood. Um, And then he had a brother who had moved to California at the beginning of the Second World War. And at the end of the Second World War, uh, he got a job in California and we moved out there. Um, And then he died the following year. And to my enormous surprise and dismay, my mother elected to stay in California. Uh, and so I did junior high school and high school in California, and went to California State Schools, uh, and I was very happy to be able to do that.
0: And then you say you quit college, you get married at nineteen, and then ten years later, you were divorced with two children, and and that's when you decided to resume your your studies
1: no um, I I was uh, not divorced with two children when I resumed the studies I went I was still married when I went to graduate school although the marriage broke up while I was in graduate school um, but I you know I was home with kids and I turned out not to be um, of it was really hard for me I the I, I, I I was not really equipped to be a full-time mom. I needed some time off, and friends advised me to go to graduate school, so I did, um, and chose to go to graduate school in molecular biology because my favorite professor, during the time I was an undergraduate, was in that department. And... I thought if he was in that department, that must be a really exciting thing to study. Um, so I you know, went to graduate school in molecular biology and became a bent scientist and trained myself to do that. And at the time, at the point at which I knew I was going to finish my degree, and I would certainly have a job at the end of that um, and would be able to support my children independently, uh, that was when the marriage broke up.
0: You became a professor in biology and nutrition science at UC San Francisco, and then uh, and, and served as a senior nutrition policy advisor for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Became the chair of the Department of Home Economics and Nutrition at NYU in 1988. So you were moving up. Your career was uh, really m- moving a lot higher than a lot of other people who ju- who choose to major in a in a field, and then just teach it for the rest of their lives.
1: Yeah, I was, I mean, some of this was stroke of luck. Um, you know, I, the, uh, when I, I, the job at the University of California, San Francisco was actually my second teaching job. I had been at Brandeis for a while. I did a lot of moving across country following husbands, and the, uh, um, the job at NYU seemed like a miracle to me. I mean, it was just a complete stroke of luck. They were looking for a chair for the Department of Home Economics. They thought that since I had been working for the government, I would have access to a lot of grant money. And the... Um, uh, you know, when I was offered the job as chair uh, with some negotiation around it, I thought it was absolutely a miracle. I didn't think there were very many universities that would look at my changing fields from molecular biology to nutrition, would look at that kind of thing favorably. I didn't have an enormous number of publications. Uh, and uh, really, it was, uh, the, it was an act of desperation on their part. They just really needed a chair for that department. And I looked like I would be a good candidate. And I was brought in to do something that was actually pretty challenging, which was to bring that department into the 20th, if not the 21st century. Uh, I mean, nobody had home economics departments anymore by then. Um, so then the big question was, what was that department going to turn into? And that was also where we got really lucky and we got to invent food studies. Uh, that was also a stroke of luck or timing or something that uh, the stars were in the right place. And so we started the first food studies programs at New York University, uh, undergraduate, master's and doctoral. And there was a program in gastronomy at Boston University at the time. But I didn't think gastronomy would work at NYU. But I did think that food studies would because there were lots of other programs that had the word studies in them, and I wanted this to be academically respectable, which it was and
0: is. I I suspect a few students were surprised that when they uh, entered the Department of Home Economics, it wasn't what home economics had meant for many years preceding.
1: Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of students that were left over. And we had 25 home economics programs in the department, and they all had to be closed. Um, they had very few students in them, and the that was a long, slow process. Uh, there were nutrition programs in the department that were quite viable and are still viable. But the food studies came in to substitute for a hotel program that was being taught under an another title and was being moved. I mean, this is long, complicated academic politics and not very interesting. But the point was that we were able to take advantage of that situation and develop uh, programs in food studies that were the first. But now uh, practically every university in the country has, if not food programs, then food courses. And yet at the time that we started ours, uh, the question that I got asked all the time was what's food studies? Huh. Why would anybody want to study about food? Isn't that just about cooking? And I, you know, it was, it was, I, I would, it was sometimes very difficult to explain that food is a multi-trillion-dollar uh, business that thousands millions of people in the world are don't have enough food billions of people have so much food that they're gaining weight and developing chronic disease agriculture has a big impact on climate change food is an incredibly important part of cultural practices, there's a history, there's material culture. I mean, there's plenty to study. And it's been so gratifying to see all these programs all over the country and all over the world now, where people are doing really serious academic studies of aspects of food. It's something that really, every time a new program opens, I feel personally responsible for it.
0: You write about the many obstacles and challenges you face as a woman and also within the bureaucracies. How are you able to deal with so many instances of blatant discrimination? Did you have any role models? well i
1: didn't actually and i didn't have mentors um but i did go around and ask people for advice and and i think one of my skills is to recognize good advice when i hear it um i guess the you know the the worst example of that or the most prominent was when some when i was teaching at brandeis and somebody was and a man was hired to do exactly the same job that i was doing And was paid a third more, Mm. Um, and you know, I I found out about it in a particularly funny way. But when I did find out about it, instead of looking at it as a disaster and being miserable, it was this was just at the time when the women's movement was starting, and I looked at it as a gift. I knew I was going to get my salary raised. If, if I handled it right, and I had very good advice about how to handle it, um, and I just spent a year saying, I don't want to take this to the Affirmative Action Committee. I don't want to take this to court. I just want you to pay me the difference. And they did eventually. It took about a year, but they did.
0: My guest on today's Low Pit at Large is Marion Nessel. Whose latest book is Slow Cooked and Unexpected Life in Food Politics, published by the University of California Press. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. You write about the politics of the 1988 Surgeon General's report on nutrition and health. How was it political?
1: Everything about food and nutrition is political. (laughs) On On my first day on that job, I was told that no matter what the research showed, the report would not say to eat less of any specific food products. It wouldn't say eat less meat. It wouldn't say eat fewer processed foods. It wouldn't say anything about eating less because the producers of those foods would get so upset, particularly meat, that they would go to the Department of Agriculture and have the Department of Agriculture go to Congress and stop the report from being published. And this was not a paranoid fantasy. This was exactly what would happen and so one of the things i had to learn in my two years of editing that report was how to negotiate uh, keeping the department of agriculture at bay uh, and keeping my colleagues at the Department of Agriculture from um, getting so upset about what the report was going to say that they would intervene. And so the, re- the, the report ended up speaking in euphemisms as all federal dietary advice does. It talks about food when it says eat more fruits and vegetables. It talks about uh, nutrients. It switches to nutrients when it talks about eating less saturated fat, salt, or sugar, those are all euphemisms for uh, meat, which is the highest source of saturated fat in American diets. processed snack foods, which are the highest sources of salt, um, and sugar-sweetened beverages, which are Mm -hmm. the highest sources of sugar. Uh, So you don't usually see in federal dietary advice, stop drinking soft drinks, eat less meat. Um, Everything is phrased in much more delicate terms. So that report
0: focused on reducing our fat intake and led food companies to manipulate ingredients and, and food products, what's been called... The snack well effect?
1: Oh, yes. So the big the big statement in the Surgeon General's report of, of, on nutrition and health and also the diet and health study that came out of the National Academies the next year, uh, both of them said that saturated fat was the single most important thing you should eat less of in American diets. They didn't say anything about sugar at all. Because at that time, um, the evidence for problems with sugar was restricted to tooth decay um, and nobody thought there was anything nobody was worried about calories and the so what happened after those reports came out was that the snackwell company produced uh cookies that had no fat in them at all and they made up the calories with sugar and so that's called the Snackwell's phenomenon and a lot of people think that that was responsible for the rise in calorie intake during the 1980s and 90s um, I don't think that the report was responsible for anything like that I don't think anybody read that report but the um, The idea that food companies are perfectly happy to formulate products in any way that the government is suggesting they do so, as long as they can make money on them. That's really all they care about.
0: What about the 1991 USDA food pyramid? Hadn't it been under research for 12 years?
1: it it did indeed it was under it was a research project that was started in the early 1980s and the research covered two different kinds of things it covered the how, what kinds of foods you would need to eat in order to meet your requirements for essential nutrients but it also looked at what kind of visual Presentation you would have to do in order to make people understand which foods were healthier than others. It was hierarchical. And it was meant to come out in uh, 1991. And what the, what the pyramid showed was that fruits and vegetables and whole grain foods were at the bottom. You were supposed to eat more. It was really a triangle. We're at the bottom of the triangle. You're supposed to eat more of those. And meat and dairy products were at the top. You were supposed to eat less of those because of the saturated fat issue. Um, and the, um, the meat industry had a meeting in Washington On a weekend when the Washington Post wrote about the pyramid coming out, it was at the printer about to be published.
0: The National Cattlemen Association.
1: The Cattlemen's Association, right. And they had a meeting scheduled with the Secretary of Agriculture on the following Monday. They went in and said, you can't. Produce a food guide that says we should eat less meat. You can't do that. And so the Secretary of Agriculture, who was new and really didn't know the history of all of these years of research that had gone into it, stopped it. And withdrew it from the printer and said that it hadn't been tested on, women and low, on low-income women and children, and therefore he was going to withdraw it and redo the whole thing. And so they spent the next year redoing the research. But in the meantime, the press got hold of it, and there were just dozens and dozens and dozens of articles during the entire next year about how the Department of Agriculture was sold out to the meat industry. And they,
0: and you were being approached by reporters?
1: Yeah, I was quoted in those articles because on the night that one of those, I was quoted in one of those Washington Post articles. And on the night that that article came out, I got a call from someone at the Department of Agriculture, who I knew, who said, we're not allowed to talk to the press. We've been told there's a gag order on us. We've been told we're not to talk to the press. But I know that the Secretary of Agriculture is lying about the reasons why the pyramid was withdrawn. The real reason why it was withdrawn was because it was pressure from the meat industry. I've got documents that will prove that, but I'm not allowed to give them to anybody. Do you think you could get get those documents to the press. And I thought, hmm, I could probably do that. (laughs) So I put together, I got things in plain brown envelopes, and um, I got things sent to me from hotel fax machines, and all kinds of things that couldn't be traced, and I put together a press kit and just sent it out to lots and lots of reporters, particularly Marion Burroughs at the New York Times, uh, who was very, very interested in the story, started writing about it immediately, and eventually figured out what the Department of Agriculture was was doing. And when she published her um, article on what the Department of Agriculture was planning to do, it was so embarrassing to the Department of Agriculture that they finally released the pyramid. And it lasted until um, 2010, I think, yeah, when a new the, food
0: guide came in. The My Plate guidelines replaced them. You, you write that at one point you felt like Bob Woodward talking to Deep Throat. <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I tell these, you know, I just love the stories about it. I had a wonderful time that year. I was interviewed by a lot of reporters. And all I was contacted by Newsweek at one point um, and asked by a reporter to get them a color graphic of the withdrawn pyramid. And I told them I didn't have one. All I had was a black and white Xerox copy. And he said, Um, we've been told that you can get us a color graphic. And I thought, well, I can try. So I called up the public relations firm that was dealing with all of this and told them that um, I wanted a color graphic of the pyramid and that a reporter from Newsweek was looking for it. And he said, we can't give that to the press. And I said, well, I'm not asking you to give it to the press. I'm asking you to give it to me. Mm. And he said, well, uh, let me think about it. And then I got a call back later saying the object that you requested will be at the concierge desk of the Four Seasons Hotel in Washington, (laughs) D.C. at noon today. (laughs) I was in New York at the time, so I called up Newsweek and said, well, that's where it is. And They picked it up and eventually sent me the slides, so I have those slides.
0: You say that the undersecretary the, at the Department of Agriculture was concerned about what the report was going to say about meat. Weren't they planning to use the term saturated fat as a euphemism for meat?
1: They did use saturated fat as a euphemism. That's, that's how that came in. That was in the 1980 dietary guidelines. It was already clear by then that you couldn't say eat less meat. Uh, so, saturated fat is a euphemism for eating less meat. I mean, now that the, that meat is under pressure, not only for health reasons. You know, and saturated fat is highly debated about how important a risk factor it is for heart disease. Um, the meat industry is under pressure over climate change mm-hmm. because beef produce—you know—they burp methane, and it's a greenhouse gas, and there's a huge problem about that. Um, so now we, the we discussed
0: inter- it the other day with another guest. Uh, the those very things, all the the impact that uh, cattle have had on. The environment and methane being a major one, there are ways to get around it. Uh, You don't have to keep cattle penned up as much as we do. And when they're out uh, roaming around, they produce less methane. It becomes part of what creates the methane just becomes part of the whole cycle.
1: Yeah, I mean, the industrial methods for raising crops and cattle are, are, are a real problem. We really need a much more diversified agricultural production system. Um, but, you know, the the meat industry has had a very, very heavy hand in dietary advising since uh, the government started issuing dietary advice about obesity-related chronic disease. You know, when when the big nutrition problems were uh, nutrient deficiencies, it was much easier for everybody because you could just advise eating more of everything.
0: Didn't the MyPlate guidelines replace the food pyramid in 2010? How much of a change did they bring?
1: Well, it was a huge change And I thought an unfortunate one I thought the pyramid was really pretty good It um, you know, it had been heavily researched And made it clear that you were supposed to eat Some foods more than others um, I, I thought with a switch in some of the Having fruits and vegetables and plant foods at the bottom And grains above it would have made a big difference And would have taken care of most of the criticisms of the pyramid But the group that came in with the Obama administration, wanted a complete change. And so they developed the My Plate Food Guide, uh, in which half the plates are, is fruit and vegetables, and a quarter is grains, and a quarter is the unfortunately named, in my view, uh, protein section. Uh, which, uh, you know, I as a nutritionist, it really bothers me because grains have protein and dairy foods. Have protein and protein is to use protein as a word that describes plant or animal sources of protein when there are other plant and animal sources of protein. I don't know, it just doesn't make any sense to me. But anyway, that's what it is.
0: Well, the uh, phrase food politics is in your subtitle here, but how much does just politics play a part in everything? we are discussing. After all, you began working on uh, food programs uh, for the government in 1988. Uh, that meant that there were an awful lot of different administrations over the years.
1: Right. And every time an administration chain changes, um, the politics change. So that during, I guess, the Obama administration is probably a really good example where um, Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign to end childhood obesity within a generation um, focused on better school food. And she tried very hard to change the marketing practices of food companies towards food children. And, you know, I'm guessing that she must have picked on school food as something that was really bipartisan. Doesn't everybody want? kids to eat better in school? Doesn't everyone want children to be healthier? Uh, apparently not, because everything that she tried to do in schools was opposed. I um, mean, it was enormously contentious. And the, the pushback on what she was trying to do was really extraordinary. Uh, so that even something that you would think would unify Americans around something as important as childhood health turned out to be contentious and heavily politicized.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org.
1: I like good stay guacamole and chips, entree, potatoes, risotto, take me to an
0: all-you-can-eat I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Marion Nessel. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of her book, Slow Cooked, An Unexpected Life in Food Politics. To do that, just go online to give2wbai.org to or call 212-209-2950 during today's show and we will be happy to send you a copy. That's give and then the number two, wbai.org or 212 209 2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Linda Low paid at large. And we thank you very much. in return to Marion Nestle talking, as we I said, about her book, Slow Cooked and Unexpected Life in Food Politics, published by the University of California Press. Uh, she is the Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health Emerita at NYU. And how did that happen? How did you come to be named uh, the a professor uh, named after a famous movie star, Paulette Goddard?
1: Well, Paulette Goddard was a movie star of the 1940s, um, and she had a very interesting life. She was married or not married to Charlie Chaplin, Burgess Meredith, and eventually Eric Maria Remarque, who was the author of All Quiet on the Western Front, and a major public intellectual. Um, So she traveled in very intellectual circles and left a lot of money to NYU. She didn't have any children, and she left her money to NYU. I was told she left the money in the form of baubles, jewelry. uh, But it was something like $20 million worth of jewelry. Mm. Um, and, and that money was used to fund named professorships. and I was lucky enough to get one of them. I was very, very happy about that. Um, so lots of people don't know who Paulette Goddard was, and it's always fun to be able to talk about her and uh, talks that I give because she was a wonder she was absolutely gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And I'm and pretty good actress too. So that was fun.
0: But do we know whether she was interested in food politics?
1: <laughs> oh, I don't think so. I mean, I have no idea. Um, the Remark Institute, which is in New York, uh, you know, has a lot of information about her. Uh, but I hope she at least liked eating well.
0: Did you talk about food politics with other people in the field, like when you uh, had dinner with Julia Child?
1: Oh, yes, right. My famous dinner with Julia Child. Uh, That was
0: beef and and mashed potatoes?
1: Beef and mashed potatoes. Oh, and not just any mashed potatoes, but the kind of mashed potatoes that are 50% butter. Hmm. Butter makes. Ev- I I wish I could do a Julia Child um, invitation, but it was butter makes everything taste better, doesn't mm. it? There's nothing like a good piece of beef, is there? Um, it was well, she interest- of course
0: she learned cooking in France. She learned
1: cooking in France. And I was introduced to Julia Child because um, someone had the bright idea that if Julia Child met me, she would change her mind about (laughs) nutritionists. Julia Child hated nutritionists. She thought that nutritionists had ruined the world for decent food with their focus on not eating too much fat um, and saturated fat and not eating meat and all of those things. She was just appalled by that. Um And the uh, and not using salt and not and all of these other things that nutritionists tend to do. And someone heard and I really like to eat and I love food. And, uh, you know, somebody who knew Julia pretty well said, well, if Julia met me, maybe she would change her mind. And so I was invited to dinner that ended up at Julia Child's house. I mean, I was just thrilled beyond belief because I had cooked from mastering the art of French cooking. Um, In the years when I was living in Berkeley and my copy of Mastering was just completely spattered with pages stuck together and, you know, it was just completely spattered with food. And I thought if I brought my copy of Mastering for her to sign, she would take one look at it and realize that I was a serious cook. Mm -hmm. But it didn't work.
0: (laughs) Well, she was a real character. I have stories to tell, although... They're irrelevant to this conversation, but uh, I, I loved my interactions with her. Uh, now, you have uh, won numerous awards. You have been uh, re- read by many people, had followers uh, from your articles in San Francisco Chronicle, in, Ta- in Time Magazine, Science Magazine, The Guardian. Uh, received uh, with the John Dewey Award for Distinguished Public Service from Bard College. Um, and uh, you, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, you, uh, you you've been called one of the smartest and most influential authorities on nutrition and food policy, the leading guide in intelligent, unbiased, independent advice on eating, America's foremost nutrition warrior. But you report that you've also been called, I'm quoting, one of the country's most hysterical anti-food fanatics, the anti-pleasure nutritionist. What led to that?
1: Well, I think if you, you know, much of my work criticizes the role of the food industry in trying to sell unhealthy products to as many people as possible. And defenders of the food industry don't like that. It's smacks of nanny statism. Um, they, uh, you know, I mean, they're defenders of the food industry. I don't know what to say. The, I don't think that people who work for food companies are necessarily trying to promote obesity in the population. I think they're just trying to sell products and, and make money for their stockholders. That's their businesses, like any other kind of business. And somehow that's an inconvenient truth. That defenders of the food industry would prefer that people not know or think about um, when they're trying to sell products that sell that where there are billions of dollars of sales of, uh, you know, what junk foods or what we're now calling ultra processed foods in supermarkets. They really don't want somebody who's saying, well, the companies are making money off of this and this is their main reason for making them. Um, so I I think it's understandable. That's politics, um, and the I, I try not to take it personally. That that kind of criticism I've had plenty of it, and I think well, if you're going to talk about food politics, you have to be understand that there are people who aren't going to like your politics. That's well, you, how the system works.
0: You obviously must have. Uh... Enjoyed it a bit because you included that quote in your book. But I I was interested in the wording of it, um, calling you one of the country's most hysterical (laughs) anti-food fanatics. When people want to put a woman down, they often use the word hysterical.
1: Hysterical. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Emotional, hysterical, something where you're not thinking. Um, I mean, it's interesting to me. I'm rarely criticized for the kinds of science that I have or my scientific views. Most of the criticism is of my opinions or, um, you know, slightly disguised anti-woman misogyny or whatever. But as I said, I try not to take it personally. And I've developed a fairly thick skin over the years, which is a good thing, because otherwise I couldn't do the kind of work I'm doing.
0: I'm talking with Marion Nestle. Her latest book is Slow Cooked, and Unexpected Life in Food Politics, published by the University of California Press. Uh, how, How did you expand on the existing curriculum at NYU when you started the food studies program in 1996? You write, we knew we were breaking new ground with food studies, but we had no idea we would be starting a movement
1: Well, the movement part of it is that by starting these programs, undergraduate master's and doctoral programs in food studies at NYU, we were making it academically respectable. And that made it possible for uh, people who wanted to teach about food in other universities Mm -hmm. to start programs as well. That's where the movement came in. Um, I and mean, now it's pretty hard.
0: much it, it would be hard to find a university in the United States or in most countries of the world where there aren't courses about food in society. Absolutely,
1: Yeah, and- I mean, they're everywhere now. They may not be called food studies, and they may not be formal programs with degrees, but there's certainly courses. And even at NYU, we in our department have have been unable to keep up with The number of faculty in other departments at NYU who are teaching courses about food because students love courses about food. Food is a way to talk about really abstract concepts and difficult political and economic, sociological, anthropological, sociological, historical concepts uh, in ways that everybody can relate to because everybody eats. Everybody's an expert on food. Uh, you know, not only its health aspects, but also these other dimensions. It's really exciting. I mean, there we have a doctoral student in our department who studies food and poetry. I mean, there just isn't anything that you can think of that doesn't have a food dimension or a food piece of it that brings it home and makes it concrete in a way that everybody can understand and get excited about. It's really fun to teach, I have to say. I thought it was a great way to teach undergraduate biology. That's how I got started. And it's certainly a wonderful way to teach about about current contemporary issues.
0: And we talk about, A lot about food here at WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, where we like to believe that much of our programming is food for thought. Um, What led you to write food politics uh, after all of the years in the field? And how did it change your life?
1: Well, the the genesis for the book came in the early 1990s, 10 years before I even started working on it, when I went to a meeting at the National Cancer Institute on behavioral causes of cancer. And the two behaviors that were discussed at that meeting were diet, that's why I was there to give a talk on diet and cancer, and cigarette smoking. Most of it was about cigarettes. And... Um, I certainly knew that cigarettes were bad for you, but I had never heard the physicians and scientists from all over the world give talks on cigarettes and health. I had never heard those talks. And I heard one after another after another talk about cigarette marketing And there were talks about uh, where they showed slides in those days, it was pre-PowerPoint, and they were showing slides of cigarette marketing in remote areas of Nepal, in remote areas of Africa. Uh, Just everywhere in the world, they would show pictures of cigarette marketing. And then there was one speaker, John Pierce, who was at the University of California, San Diego, a cancer researcher, who showed pictures of cigarette marketing to children. And this was revelatory to me. And again, it wasn't because I didn't know that cigarette companies marketed to children. I knew that. I had just never paid any attention to it. And what these slideshows showed was that if you paid attention, cigarette marketing was everywhere. But you never noticed it because it was a normal part of the landscape. It was just completely normal to have these ads everywhere that you looked. And so you didn't pay any attention to them. And it was later explained to me by marketing executives that that's how marketing works when it's done well. It slips below the radar of your critical thinking and you don't notice it. It's just totally subliminal. And I walked out of that meeting thinking, we should be doing this for food marketing. And I started paying attention. I started looking for particularly soda marketing everywhere I went. If I traveled abroad, I took pictures of Coke and Pepsi marketing everywhere particularly if it was aimed at children or aimed at communities of color. Um, I took pictures of it, and I've got a fantastic collection of photographs of uh, soda industry marketing, fast food industry marketing. And I started paying attention to it and writing articles about the ways in which food companies market their products, which, of course, was exactly the same way that any other company markets products except that you just never thought about it in in connection with food in the same way and eventually i had enough articles to think that that would turn into a book and as i said earlier i never occurred to me that that book was anything but stating the obvious Um, i published it with an academic press because no other press were public publications no other publishers were interested Um, And University of California Press did a terrific job of producing this book. It's got a gorgeous cover. Um, And the book came out and a lot of people read it and were absolutely shocked. Really? Food companies are doing these things (laughs) just like cigarette companies who would have guessed? Um, And so that changed my academic life in that um, I got a lot of invitations to speak and to consult and to travel and to do things that academics get to do if their work interests other people and I was very fortunate in that lots of people were interested in this
0: and that led you to write more books uh, this new one is your 14th so Actually, it's the fifteenth. <laughs> so how did you choose what to write about
1: well they came um I mean first of all in preparing food politics for university of california press i had i didn't realize that a manuscript page was essentially a printed page And I thought I needed to write much more. I was aiming for a 250-page book. um, And I ended up by sending in a manuscript that was so long that they split it into two books. Mm -hmm. And so the second book was uh, the book that contained the chapters on food safety and food biotechnology. And then that led to uh, I wanted to do a book for the public, That was What to Eat that came out in 2006, which is a book about food issues for the general public situated in supermarkets. I'm now working on a second edition of that book. Um, And then that in turn uh, gave me the idea of writing about pet food because I didn't include a chapter on pet food in the supermarket book. Um, but it was clear that it took up a whole aisle in supermarkets, and my partner was an animal nutritionist, I thought that would be a great project for us to write together. Um, So we did, and then that led to yet another book because there was a big recall of pet food, and I thought that was a book in itself. Um, And then it was so much fun working with him that we did a book on calories. I mean, it just goes on and on. Why calories count. Why Calories Count, um, a book that is holding up very well, by the way. And uh, then I did Soda Politics because there was all this These efforts to uh, set soda taxes, and Mayor Bloomberg was trying to put a cap on sodas. I thought I I wrote that one as an advocacy manual how you go about getting people to eat less sodas and how you get sodas out of schools and so forth. Um, And then a book of essays, and then a book about how food companies induce um uh, researchers to produce research that favors food company interests. Mm. And then the memoir, which is a pandemic project. Uh,
0: let, let's ask Marion. Uh, okay, so let's talk about pe- the pandemic. How much has it affected the food industry?
1: Well, it's been an enormous effect. I mean, for one thing, it exposed difficulties in the in in the food supply chains, so that grocery stores had empty shelves. and we're still seeing that with infant formula. Uh, and so prices
0: that, have gone up incredibly.
1: Prices have gone up incredibly. Uh, you know, an enormous problem. We saw what we saw what it was like for people who were considered essential workers. And these were people who worked in grocery stores in meat packing plants who who were getting COVID faster and more seriously than everybody else. We saw the president of the United States issue a order that the packing plants had to stay open. That order was written by the meat industry. So it became very obvious that the meat industry was, had an enormous influence over government. We saw food being destroyed at the same time that people were lined up for miles to get handouts at food banks. I mean, really serious problems with the food system became very evident during the pandemic. Uh, th- things that you know nobody thought would uh, you know th- that I've been teaching for years, but that most people didn't understand at all, were on the front pages of newspapers. Uh, so it's been very interesting to talk to people. I mean, it's really changed the way we talk about food food systems now because so many more people understand how they work.
0: NYU held a week long series of events to celebrate your retirement in 2018. Have you given up? Teaching entirely because your title now is emerita at NYU. Yeah, I,
1: re, I, I retired in 2017, and the um, I, I thought I was I thought it was time. <laughs> the uh, um, mainly because uh, you know there, there's an age beyond which you really shouldn't hold a tenured position at a university, and I was well into that. Um, but I am. You were nearing I, I,
0: 80 at the time.
1: I was nearing eighty at the time. I'm now well over it, and the uh, I I taught until uh, 2021. I in 2021 I taught um, I taught courses online. I don't particularly enjoy online teaching. You can't really get to know the students. You can't see how they're reacting to what you're saying. Uh, Somehow the human part of teaching gets lost in online teaching. Uh, And the next year it was hybrid teaching, which meant that uh, you were in a classroom with a mask on. And I don't know about anybody else, but I find it really hard to hear people speak if they're wearing if they're wearing a mask. And I couldn't imagine trying to project through a mask. So I I haven't taught since 2021. Um, and I don't know whether – I'm giving lecture. – I'm still giving lots of lectures and lecturing in people's classes. Um, I'm working on a book. I'm still, you know, traveling and doing all that kind of thing. Uh, but I'm not sure what I'm going to do about formal teaching. I really never want to have to grade another class, I must say. Grading is not fun at all. Um, well, I'm very,
0: is- I'm very pleased that you were able to talk with us today on this show. Um, I've been speaking with Marion Nestle, her latest book, Slow-Cooked and Unexpected Life in Food Politics, published by the University of California Press. What a great pleasure it's been talking with you.
1: Well, Leonard, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I'm so glad you're still doing
0: this. Uh, yeah, well, I'm not yet ready to retire, but uh, I haven't won as received as many awards as you have, just a Peabody and a few James Beard <laughs> Awards. Uh, <laughs> Bye. I hope to see you soon.
1: Uh, That would be great. Thanks so much.
0: And that brings us to the end of the show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And you, if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI. We are behind in our rent and, and, and paying for our tower. Uh, and uh, it's understandable because we rely 100% on listener contributions. We don't take uh, ads or foundation grants. But that means that we need listeners uh, like you to make a contribution of whatever level you're comfortable with by calling 212 209 or by going online to give to WBAI. We hope you'll do it right now. That's 212 209 2950, or give and then the number to WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing this unique, in-depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, if you make a contribution of $50 or more in the name of London Phillippe at Lodge right now, you can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing. Slow-Cooked and Unexpected Life in Food Politics by Marion Nestle. So why not make that call right now? Or consider becoming a sustaining member of what we call a BAI buddy and we, uh, for $10, 15 25 however many dollars you can a month. Plus, it's tax deductible. We're off tomorrow, but we hope you can join us again on Friday when my guest will be Bradley Onishi discussing his new book, Preparing for War. We'll see you then.